Before we look at our text, let us go to God in prayer. Holy Spirit, be among us this morning as your word is proclaimed. Lord, where our faith is weak, give us strength. Where our minds are dull, give us clarity. Where our heart is troubled, give us hope. For our soul is weary. And Lord, we seek a taste of your glory. So renew our minds and revive our spirit to worship you this day. Amen. So last week we focused on Genesis chapter 3 and the consequences of the fall. And we saw how Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they experienced those consequences. They experienced the consequence of this, this experience of guilt. And their immediate response to that guilt was to try to hide from God, to cover themselves. We also saw that in their shame they tried to deflect the blame away from themselves. And we saw how the consequence of their sin complicated life. It led to pain. And lastly, it fractured humanity's relationship with God and brought about death. But we also saw how Christ, through the cross, restored what was broken as a result of the fall. Christ has clothed us with his righteousness so that we no longer have to hide in our guilt. Christ has taken the responsibility of our sin upon himself so that we are set free from sin's shame. In Christ, we can serve once again as the image of God and seek to restore and heal the pain and brokenness of sin. Christ restores our relationship with God, and in Christ we have access to eternal life. Christ restores all things. But there was also a a small detail that I didn't mention from the text last week. I didn't elaborate elaborate on it. And I thought I would mention it here to start as as sort of a transition point between chapter 3 of Genesis and into chapter 4. And it's found in this verse, Genesis 3, 21. And it says, And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. I think this is a really interesting verse. That God clothed them. I think this little detail is trying to convey some deeper meaning for us. Because what is interesting about this is that even after the fall, even after Adam and Eve's sin and the consequence of it, God did not abandon them. And not only does God promise this future redemption as we looked at last week in Genesis 3.15, but God also shows a continued compassion for them. God clothes them. God covers their nakedness. He covers their shame, and he does so with these animal skins, which implies that there was an animal whose blood was sacrificed to cover their guilt, to cover their shame. There was this blood sacrifice made, possibly a foreshadowing of the sacrificial system of Israel, and ultimately, possibly, foreshadowing Christ, whose blood was shed to cover our sin and our shame and to clothe us with his own righteousness. This act of God clothing Adam and Eve shows that even though there was this breach in the relationship God was still going to be with them. It reminds me of an image of a loving parent. You know, as parents, we don't like to do it, but there's times when we have to punish, we have to discipline our kids, and we hate to do it. 
But we have to put down that, that discipline for their own good. But even in that discipline, it's like the parent going to the child after that, you know, after they've processed things and giving them a hug and saying, I love you. I still love you. I will never stop loving you. I think that's the image that this verse brings to mind, that God is not done loving us even after we fail, even after we sin, even after we hurt ourselves and others. God is not done with us. So I mention this because we also see God's continued presence with Adam and Eve in verse 1 of chapter 4, which is where we will pick up today. So Genesis 4, 1 Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. See, Eve wasn't completely on her own. She gave birth to Cain with the continued care of God. Even in exile, even outside of the garden, God is still with them. There was nowhere that they could go away from God's presence. No sin was too great that God would abandon them. God was with them in the wilderness of life and in the midst of their failure and their guilt and their shame and their pain did not abandon them. I think that's really important because that's a a crucial message for us today. That even in our sin, no failure is too great that God is not with us and God continues to care for us always. There's another interesting little uh, sub-point from verse 1. So after Eve gives birth to Cain, she says, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. So that verb for produced, or here it's, yeah, yeah, produced on that last line. Um, The NRSV translates it here as produced. It's actually the verb form of Cain's name. So the word Cain means to acquire. So basically Eve says, I have Cained a cane. And it's, it's this kind of interesting interplay between the words, but that's all I'm going to say about that. Nothing really extra special. I just think it's neat when the, when the language does that. Uh, so picking up now in verse 2. Next she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a tiller of the ground. So Abel, keeper of the sheep, okay, he's a, he's a rancher, all right, and Cain a tiller of the ground, he's a farmer. So verses 3 through 5. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So let's look at these verses for a little bit and do a little comparing and contrasting. All right, Remember that from school, compare and contrast. So what did Cain and Abel do for a living? Cain worked the soil, or Abel kept the flocks. The question is, is is there anything wrong with that? No. (laughs) I mean, there's nothing wrong with Cain being a farmer, Abel being a rancher. There's nothing wrong there. It's completely fine to have different roles. God calls us to different roles, so there's nothing wrong with that. So what did they bring For their offerings. Well, since Cain was a farmer, it made sense that he gave from what he had, which was the fruit of the soil. Abel, being a rancher, he gave what from what he had, which was from his flock. Is there anything wrong with that? No. I mean it makes sense. They give from what they have. 
There's nothing wrong there. So what is the problem in the narrative? What's the problem in the story? Why does God look favorably on Abel's offering and not on Cain's offering? Well, for looking at the words of the text, the text doesn't tell us explicitly. And I think that's intentional because stories like this that don't just explain every detail, they're interesting because they invite us into the story. You know, it's almost like we try to imagine ourselves in the scene and what's going on. And we're, we're, in a way, we're using our imagination. Instead of just trying to gain knowledge about something, we're trying to gain wisdom. We're trying to see how this applies in life. We're looking for other clues to help us. So as we read this text, though, we get a sense that the drama in the story, it centers around the offerings. Because God was pleased with Abel's, but not with Cain. So there's something about the offerings that we need to pay attention to. Well, as we're in the story, we need to not only ask, what does the text say? But we can also ask, what does the text not say? What's not mentioned? Are there any clues by just the words that are there and the words that aren't there? So let's consider what it says about the quality of those offerings. So verse 3 says that Cain gave an offering. There's no extra information given, just an offering. In verse 4, Abel's offering expresses more. Abel gave the, of the firstlings, the firstborn of his flock, which that represented the most prized of the flock, the firstborn. But not only of the firstborn, but also of the fat portions, which, you know, for us, fat's kind of like a negative thing, you know, when we try to trim all that stuff off. But in, in that culture, in that time, that idea, that was the most, most choice parts of the animal. So we kind of start to maybe suspect a problem. Because the text is silent on the quality of Cain's offering, yet it emphasizes specific things about Abel's offerings. Abel gave of the firstborn of his flock, from the fat portions of his flock. The best of the best is what it's saying. But by its silence about Cain's offering, Cain apparently didn't give of his first fruits. He didn't give of his choicest uh, of his crop. We don't know exactly what he gave. But as we invite ourselves into the story and ask, we can kind of ask, well, maybe what did Cain give? It, it leads us to ponder and to, to use our imagination. So what maybe did Cain give? Perhaps Cain only gave his leftovers. Perhaps maybe he had, he had taken his crop and he had set aside for himself all that he wanted and the stuff that he didn't really need or whatever, maybe that's what he gave to God. Or maybe he gave the things that didn't grow right. There's a, over the pandemic, you know, when we were all doing our shopping, virtually, having everything de- delivered, we came across a site, the Imperfect Foods. Anybody else hear about that one? So basically you get cheaper foods because it's like the foods that the grocery store doesn't want because they don't look pretty, but it's still edible and everything. Well, maybe Cain kind of looked at that and was like, that does not look good. I'll give that to God. You know, I want this one. We don't know. Again, we're just using our imagination here a little bit. Or maybe Cain is looking at what he collected from his, his crop and he said, a bug kind of got into that one. I don't want to eat a worm. 
just give this one to God. God won't care. You know, God made the worms. Everything is good. We don't really know. But I think there's enough said there in the silence, as it were, that we can come to some conclusions. But let's do a little more observation before we kind of jump right into our conclusions. Let's consider more what the text does not say. See, it's important that we spend some time in, in that moment. Notice that there is no explanation in these verses about what an offering is. Cain and Abel just kind of come on the scene, and then all of a sudden they give, they're giving offerings. But there's no explanation in these verses or in the chapters before about what an offering is. There's no instruction about it. There's no explanation about what they're supposed to bring or how they're supposed to give it. There's no explanation. This is the first time offering, the word offering is even used. But there's also no indication of any confusion by Cain or Abel about any of those things. It's not like they're like, whoa, 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 whoa what's, what's this offering? What, what are we supposed to do here? There's no confusion. And the point that I'm trying to suggest here is that it appears that giving an offering was already an understood practice. It's likely something that they both knew, they both knew what it was. They both knew how they should do it and why they should do it. There were no instructions needed at this point. This was just a part of life. It was a part of their, their cycle. They knew everything they needed to know. And they knew what it meant to give an offering to the Lord and the importance of it. So what is an offering? Basically, just boil it down. An offering, no matter what, you know, the material substance, no matter if it's fruit of the ground, no matter if it's, you know, something from the flock, no matter if it's anything that we have that we give to the Lord, an offering is a reflection of the value that we have for God. We give an offering as a response to God. An offering represented one's devotion, sincerity, and gratitude for God. So the problem for Cain, the problem for Cain was not a fruit problem. He did not have a produce problem. Cain had a heart problem. Cain's offering reflected the condition of his heart. He had a spiritual heart disease that was caused by sin. And that heart disease came with a whole host of other troubling symptoms that we see play out in the rest of chapter 4. We see envy. We see jealousy. We see bitterness. We see resentment. We see dishonesty and arrogance. We see hate. We see violence. We even see murder. These are all symptoms of his spiritual heart disease. And God warned Cain about the risk of this heart disease. We know heart disease, in our, I mean, it's a very serious thing. And God warns Cain about his spiritual heart disease, saying in verses 6 and 7, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. God's saying there's risks here. Cain, you have a choice before you. And the disease of sin, it's, it's viral in nature. Coming out of the pandemic, we know all about viruses, right? It's viral in nature. It can go undetectable. 
It seeks to multiply within the, the living cells of the hosts. That's, that's what a virus is, and that's what sin is. It seeks to, to multiply itself within our lives. And it can also have this contagious effect. It can lead to other problems. In fact, sin, or the disease of sin, is the most serious pandemic in all of humanity. It's more destructive, and it's more deadly than all physical ailments. When we think about this story of Cain and Abel, you know, it's not just a children's story. The Bible wasn't written for children, especially these first chapters. They were written for us all. And when we think about this story, it's interesting because it wasn't that Cain offered nothing, right? Cain gave an offering. It wasn't that Cain said, I don't believe in that. I'm not going to do that. It wasn't that Cain said, that's really dumb. I'm not going to give an offering. I, plant, you know, I did all this. I'm going to keep it all for myself. Cain didn't do those things or didn't say that things, those things. We see that Cain did give an offering. Cain gave something. But the problem that we kind of see here is that Cain, in his giving, was just going through the motions. And that's the problem. That, that's all he was really doing was going through the motions. Ultimately, the root of Cain's heart problem was a worship problem. Because Cain was a believer in God. He knew about God. He knew what God wanted. He, he knew what he should do. Cain knew all those things. So this story about Cain It's not for the atheist. The story about Cain is for the church. It's a lesson for us because, like I said, Cain wasn't an atheist. He was a a theist, but he wasn't bringing what God desired. Like Cain, we believe in God. Like Cain, we ultimately know what God wants from us. We know what pleases God. We know how we ought to live. We know what Jesus calls us to, to love God and to love neighbor. But we fail in that, just as Cain failed. So here's where the story wants us to be real with our own lives. As we invite ourselves into that story and we kind of maybe identify ourselves with Cain in the story, we need to ask ourselves, are we just going through the motions or are we worshiping? When our apathy sets in, when we just go through the motions, we risk feeling like worship is only what we do in this hour that we meet together on Sunday mornings. Or it's only confined to what we do in this bulletin, that this is worship. Like Cain, we can be really good at being religious. We can say the right things. We can do nice things. We can treat others respectfully. We can go to church regularly. But if we aren't truly offering our hearts to God, if we aren't sincere, if we aren't acknowledging our need, our reliance, our soul's hunger for God, what are we bringing to God that's any different than what Cain did? God desires authentic worship. So let's talk about what worship is Because first, it's important to realize that worship is not something that just people of faith do. 
worship, or everyone worships something, both the theist and the atheist. We all worship something. So we're going to talk about a few points of what authentic worship is, what God desires in worship. So the first point, the idea of worship describes what we value most. The English word worship comes from this old English meaning worth-ship. Worth-ship. It literally describes how much worth we assign to something. What we worship is what we assign the most value to. It's what worship means. It's basically what Jesus said in a Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we talk about worth and value, obviously money comes to mind. How much we are willing to pay for something or how much we will spend on something is a reflection of how much that thing is worth to us. Billy Graham once said, a checkbook, we don't use checkbooks often anymore, but this was written a little while ago. A checkbook is a theological document. It will tell you who and what you worship. That one makes you think a little bit. Remember that Cain gave from what he did for work. That stuff was very personal to him. That was not only his, what he ate, but that's probably how he made his, that was his livelihood. And so he, as a farmer, he gave from the fruit of his field. That was his economy. But what we worship is not just tied to money. What we worship is what takes priority in terms of our time and our energy and our resources and our focus and, yes, our money too. As I mentioned a bit ago, an offering, no matter what its material substance is, is a reflection of of the value that we have for God. Worship is given to what we assign the highest value to, and authentic worship values God above all else. I think that's the the first point of authentic worship, that we are assigning to God the highest value in our lives. The second point, authentic worship is a sincere heart for God. We worship those things which we adore. The questions we ought to ask ourselves is, are we delighting in the Lord? Do we cherish God's word? Are we hungering and thirsting for righteousness? There's a, the longest psalm in the, the Bible, in the Psalter, is Psalm 119. And that whole psalm is a, a love song for the scriptures. It's directed to about, it's, it's about God's word. And so we too should have this yearning for God's truth and a love for God's word. So if, if you need a starting place for uh, having a sincere heart for God and his word, start with these words from Psalm 119. With my whole heart I seek you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. I treasure your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the ordinances of your mouth. I delight in the way of your decrees as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This, this song, this love song for God's word expresses the sincere heart for God. Worship, it's not just about performing religious 
actions. It's about offering our hearts to God. Just like David says in Psalm 51, the the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's what God wants. Our offerings should be a gift to God. Not some sort of transaction where we feel like we're paying a bill or we've signed up for some subscription service or we're expecting something in return. It's not a transaction, it's an offering. Our worship, our offerings are a gift to God from our hearts. I mean, it's kind of like the difference in giving a gift to someone that you love. You know, like if you're thinking about Christmas coming up, you know, finding that gift for someone you love as opposed to donating something to a garage sale. Giving a gift to someone you love takes thought. You know, you want, to, you kind of get excited about giving that gift. Putting something in a garage sale, you're kind of just getting rid of something you don't want for the most part. Authentic worship is orienting our affections to God. Uh, Third point, authentic worship is about our posture before God. Our posture of humility, to be more specific. There was a parable that Jesus told about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And it describes how Jesus said the Pharisee stood up by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like these other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. He's basically saying, God, look how good I am. Look how righteous I am. But then Jesus describes the tax collector who stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, this tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisee knew how to be religious. He knew the right things to say. He knew the prayers. He knew all of that. But the tax collector was the one who knew how to worship. Authentic worship is defined by our posture of humility before God. Fourth point, our authentic worship is grateful to God. Worship is always a response. What we do here this morning is a response to God's goodness. What we give during our time of offering is a response to the gospel of God. It's a response to God's love for us. It's a response to who God is and what God has done. So our worship ought to always be permeated with gratitude in our hearts to God. Because God is the great giver of all things. The reason we have anything at all is a gift from God. So it should be our joy to give back to God. Worship acknowledges that all good things are a gift from God. What Cain seems to have forgotten was that everything that he had was a gift from God. And so he did not give his offering joyfully, but reluctantly. Maybe he thought, you know, I worked this ground. This is my produce. I earned it. I own it. I deserve it. Again, we don't know. We're just using our imagination. But whatever the case, we can see that Cain did not give joyfully out of gratitude, which is what God desires when we worship him. That we bring our hearts joyfully, lifting up our thanks and praise to God in worship. And the last point, authentic worship 
is surrendered to God. That we are all in for God. That we place our life, our trust, and our identity in Christ. Completely surrendered. That God becomes our all in all. Worship comes down to two options. There's really two options in worship. There's authentic worship that is directed toward God. And then there's everything else. Anything that's worship but it's not directed to God is simply idolatry. Those are our two options. To worship God or to fall into idolatry. And Cain, we see, gave half-hearted worship. God's not looking for half-hearted worship. He's not looking for fair-weather fans. His desire is for followers who are striving to glorify Him in all that we do, who are living with gratitude in our hearts. So we ought to be careful that not to think that worship is just what we do on Sunday mornings because the most important aspect of worship is not what we do so much as who God is. Who God is is the most important thing, and God alone is worthy of all worship. So that, where does this meet us kind of here and now and today and in our own lives? Well, kind of like Cain, we don't always feel like giving authentic worship to God. We don't feel that in our lives. We know that God deserves it, but our, maybe our affection, maybe our enthusiasm, maybe our focus is directed elsewhere, or it comes and goes. I think this is a natural result of the fall and of our sinful nature. It's part of our own heart condition. We have a heart condition. And like any physical heart condition, we have to be careful because it can be detrimental. But just like having a a physical heart condition, there's things that we can do to help prevent, you know, catastrophic heart failure, doing what they call heart-healthy things, right? This is where practicing spiritual disciplines can be invaluable in our lives. Worship, study and meditating on God's Word, service, prayer, fellowship, even finding time to spend alone with God in, in solitude, living with simplicity in life, being content with what we have. There's so many things that we can do to help live kind of a heart-healthy life spiritually. We know these things intellectually, just like Cain knew these things. But we have to really kind of take that moment and take that time to really look at our own lives and evaluate. We have this heart condition called sin. Because of that sin, we are at risk to make poor choices. We hurt others. We hurt ourselves. Like Cain, we fall into the trap of of giving to God half-hearted worship. But here's the, the questions to maybe leave us with this morning. When God lays it on your heart, when you feel that conviction about, you know what, maybe I have been giving half-hearted worship, how will you respond to that call? Will you, like Cain, get offended? Will you get defensive? Will you be put off? Will you sulk and complain? Will you rebel and go your own way? Or will you offer yourself wholly and honestly to God and ask God to revive your spirit? God knows that we're sinners. But just like God didn't abandon Adam and Eve and and all who followed, God does not abandon us. So will you strive to worship God in spirit and in truth? 
and seek to give God your best with joy and thanksgiving. Scripture tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you have not abandoned us, that you have not left us. Lord, the cross shows us that you are with us. That no matter where our life takes us, no matter how poorly we act, Lord, no matter our failure, Lord, you lift us up. Lord, you've sent Jesus Christ into the world, Lord, that we would receive forgiveness and new life. Help us to live into that new life, to be your, your image in the world, to share your good news and your message of hope with all who are around us. Lord, we pray for those in our church family. Continued prayer for Patsy Cargill and her family.